The following sermon by Nelson Atwood was recorded at Noble Park Evangelical Baptist Church. For more information, please visit their website at www.noblebaptist.org.au That's www.noblebaptist.org.au Take your Bibles, we're going to be reading from Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived, in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Loving Father, again, we give you thanks for the word of the living God. And Father, we thank you this morning for an opportunity to, again to open it and, Father, to look into it. And again, Father, we ask you, as we have asked already, that we would see Jesus this morning that we would see the love of God. Father, we ask you again that you would speak to our hearts and encourage us in our faith, that we would walk out of here this morning changed. And we ask you these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Paul is writing the Ephesian believers to describe the new creation that God has brought about. God has made us, as believers in Christ, new creatures. He has exploded in chapter 1 with an overflowing expression of praise for God who has accomplished our great salvation. He's prayed for them at the end of the chapter. And now in chapter 2, he begins to describe us as we were in need of salvation. Sinners destined for the wrath of God. Then he uses one of the great phrases in the Bible. But God. There are a few phrases like that throughout Scripture. In Romans, the phrase, but now, comes up again and again. And this phrase here, it's like the the pivoting point, the balance point between two great ideas. The greatness of our sin, our absolute need of a Savior, and God who has stepped in to intervene and provide that salvation for us. But God. One of the questions, or one of many questions we hear so often is this, what has God ever done for me? Who's ever heard that question handed to them by an unbeliever? Yeah, a few of us. Talking to somebody, sharing your faith, maybe sitting around a lunch table in a a workplace and, and sharing your faith in Christ, and you hear this shot across the table at you, yeah, well, what has God ever done for me? Maybe you've heard the question, where was God when I was hurting and lonely and desperate? How can you say that God loves and Jesus saves? What gives you the right and the basis to say those things? Who is this God that you are speaking of or speaking about? You spend any time in evangelism, any time in sharing your faith with friends and neighbors, you're going to hear questions like that. I marveled on 
uh, December, oh no, September 11th, 2001, as we were all watching the TV screens as the Twin Towers were coming down. And all across the news pages, all across the TV and the papers was, where is God? What is God doing? Why has God allowed this? A nation that has mostly turned its back on God in a moment like that are saying, where is God? What is God doing? Well, how has God helped here? And what I want to do this morning is I want to answer and I want to show you just how much God has done. Just how rich is God's love, God's love for us. And I can answer the question for you. I will show you what God has done for you. If you're sitting here this morning and you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, you don't know what it means to trust the living God. You know what it means to walk with God in a close friendship and fellowship, then listen. I want to show you what God has done for you today. Who is this God that Paul speaks of here? We, as Nick read down, he read that first part about the, our sin and our being destined to be children of wrath, even as the rest. And then he says, but God. Well, who? Who is this God? And Paul in the book so far, what he has done is he has described God in mostly in terms of what God has done for us. In chapter 1, he's talked about how God blessed us and God chose us. God predestined us. God redeemed us. God revealed the mystery of His will to us. God gave us an inheritance. God sealed us with His Holy Spirit. All those things are actions and work that God has done toward us. Even in Paul's prayer, he prays that we would receive things from God. And Paul then goes on to tell about our character and so on. How we were dead in spiritually dead in trespasses and sins. How we were living in conformity to this world in which we live. How we were living in conformity to the devil. How we were living to satisfy the lusts of the flesh and our mind. And then he goes on to tell us three great things that God has done for us. Number one, God made us alive together with Christ. That's the main point of the whole sentence. If you read in the Greek from chapter 2 and verse 1 all the way to the end of verse 9, that is one long sentence in the Greek. Everything falls subordinate to one main subject and one main verb. And the main subject is this, God. And the main verb is this, made us alive. Everything else falls subordinate to that one main idea. But he talks about three things that God has done here. He made us alive, number one, together with Christ. Number two, he raised us up together with Christ. And he has seated us together. But even as he starts to tell those things and, and respond to our need for salvation, he immediately sidetracks to tell us something about the God who has done these things. He says in verse 4, God is rich in mercy. He says also in verse 4 that God is great in love with which He loved us. And then in verses 5, verse 7, and verse 8, He says God is gracious who saved us. Love and mercy and grace. All those three things. As I meditated on these statements, I felt drawn to look through the Bible to discover more simple statements about the character, the nature of God who has made us alive. And the more I discovered, the more I looked, the more I was drawn to worship, to be in awe of God in His person, to be in amazement for God, His works and what He has done in creation and salvation and all of that, to have greater respect for God who is good and who is God. And I want to share some of them with you. I put down there 21 qualitative statements on your little outline there, and you can fill them in. We may not get every one of them, but what you can do later on is take that list home and you can look up the verse and find for yourself what that simple statement is. But I just want us to, to stop for a second, put aside everything else, and just focus on the word God. And who God is and what He is like and just savor together as a people of God, the God that we have come this morning to worship. In Exodus 15 and verse 11, God is glorious. He is not lowly. He is not degraded. He is not defiled in any way, shape, or form. He is absolutely glorious and splendorful in all of His beauties and all of His perfections. 
He is a glorious God. In Judges 6.24, the Bible says, The Lord is peace. Did I lose one? I did too. Genesis 17, verse 1, God is all-powerful. What does that mean? That means that there is nothing outside the capacity of God to do. Everything is inside His capacity to, to create and do and work. There is nothing outside of it. There is nothing that's greater than God's power. He is the all-powerful God. He's glorious. He is peace. The Lord is peace. There is peace within the Trinity. There is peace where God is. God is the maker of peace and the sustainer of peace. He doesn't make peace, by the way, by just forgetting all the problems and sort of brushing it under the table. No, God makes peace in truth. He deals with the problems. He is the peacemaker and He is the peace sustainer. In Deuteronomy 10, verse 17, He is God of gods and Lord of lords. Whatever authority we can create, whatever authority man can somehow build up, even if there were other gods, like other deities, God would still be God and sovereign over all of them. There is no higher authority, there is no higher being in all of existence but our God, the God that we have come to worship this morning. He is God of gods and Lord of lords. In Deuteronomy 32 verse 4, God is just. How many of us have seen people in power and authority in our lands around the world have very quickly become corrupt? Corruption seems to go right alongside of political power and authority. But you know what? The God that we serve is absolutely just. He cannot be corrupted. He cannot be bought off. He cannot be influenced and swayed one way or the other by influence from outside. He is absolutely just. When God deals with us, He deals with us on the basis of justice. Not by some justice enforced upon Him, but by His own justice. God is a just God. Deuteronomy 33 verse 27. God is eternal. I was sitting last night came home and I got John Piper's little book out called uh, Seeing and Savoring Jesus Christ. Talk about how God is eternal. He said one of the most profound mysteries in all of existence is the fact that we exist. You can't comprehend nothing because in order to comprehend nothing, you have to have something to think about and then nothing is not something so it doesn't work. And you get into philosophical headache over that. But God is eternal. There was never a time when God did not exist. There is never going to be a time when God will not exist. We cannot rightfully say God was, and we cannot rightfully say God will be. All we can truly say is God is. He is eternal. The other day I was uh, driving home from somewhere and just thinking about eternity and what it's going to be like. And thinking that, you know, we're going to be in His presence, praising the glory of His grace, never, ever, ever ending. We will be in that eternal state with Him. God is eternal. None came before Him. None can come after Him. He is the beginning and the end. But He didn't begin Himself. and He does not end Himself. He is the Alpha and the Omega, as the Bible says. He's an eternal God. Second Chronicles 12, verse 6, The Lord is righteous. What does that mean? It means that everything that he does is done right. He is in the right. It's possible for somebody who is wrong about something to do something that is right. But in God's case, that isn't true. He always is right and he always does right. And you know what's even cooler about that? Not only is God right, not only does God do right, but He's also in the business of making others right also. Guess who that includes? Us. The Lord is righteous, He says. Second Chronicles 12, 6. Second Chronicles 13, verse 12. God is both gracious and compassionate. We cannot earn His favor. Can you imagine trying to earn God's favor? It's impossible. He is gracious, which means He gives us His goodness without our earning it, without our meriting. We can't buy it. We can't work for it. It is simply His grace. He's also compassionate. He looks on us and He grieves when He sees the sin. He grieves when He sees how much we have defiled the image of God in which we were created. He looks on us and sees how desperate our condition is. And He's moved to act for us. 
He is a compassionate God. In Job 23, verses 8 and 9, God is invisible. You say, how does that help? Well, God is invisible is a great act of grace. Do you realize that? If God were visible, if he could see him, it would incinerate everything in its path. We would all lose. Like, I just lost my mic. Here we go. <laughs> there we go. He's invisible. That's a mark of grace because our eyes cannot stand to look upon the living God. Remember the Old Testament stories? Whenever God showed up, whenever God was present, the angel of the Lord, they all grieved. Remember Peter in the boat? When he's put the nets on the other side of the boat, okay, puts him in. There's so many fish. And all of a sudden, as he's pulling the nets up out of the water, he's looking over at Jesus and realizing who this is in the boat with him. And you know what he does? He falls on his knees and says, Depart from me, Lord. Get away from me. Why? Because the presence of God is too much for me. The very fact that God is invisible is a mark of his incredible grace. Psalm 25, verse 8, God is upright. Everything he does is of a right nature and a right character. God is holy. Psalm 77 and verse 13. The holiness of God, like we said once before, is the beauty of all of his other attributes. I love the fact in the book of Isaiah, it describes a seraphim, two wings covering their feet, two wings they fly. But with two wings, what they do? They pull them over their face. Why? So their eyes cannot look upon the holiness of God. Creatures who are created without sin to serve God in never-ending expressions of praise about Him. They cannot bring themselves to look upon the holiness of God. So their wings cover their faces. This is the God that we have come to worship. This is the God who has stepped in, in Paul's words, but God to deal with us and our desperate condition. Psalm 139, God is omniscient. He knows everything about us. In Psalm 139, verse 7, He is omnipresent. He is everywhere. If I run to the highest of heavens, I cannot get away from Him. If I run to the deepest of depths of the earth, I cannot escape from His presence. No matter how fast you run away from God, you run straight into Him. He's everywhere. He's imminent. In Isaiah 40, verse 28, God is unsearchable. Malachi 3, verse 6, God is unchanging. The very same God that we come together as a body of people to worship this morning is the very same God that came down the top of Mount Sinai and Sinai shook and quaked and there was earthquake and lightnings and flashes of thunder and or flashes of lightning and peals of thunder and trumpets blasting. Why? He is God and He has not changed. If that doesn't cause your knees to tremble just a little bit, the greatness and the majesty of the living God, that is the God who has come to intervene in our situation, our desperate need, and deal with us. Matthew 5.48, God is perfect. John 4.24, God is spirit. 1 Timothy 1.17, God is immortal. He is not subject to death. 1 John 1.5, God is light. And 1 John 4.8, God is love. All the 21 simple statements about the nature and character of God who has stepped in and seen us in our condition and has decided that He must do something. To help us. No, it was not a plan B. No, he didn't see it and go, uh oh, what am I going to do now? He had it all planned out from before the foundation of the world, but he did see us and he did recognize that we had a need that was so great that we could not deal with it ourselves. There is none like our God, the Bible says in Exodus 9 and Deuteronomy 33. There is none besides our God, Isaiah 43, verse 10. And there is none good but our God, in Matthew 19 and verse 17. There is no God like our God. The, the temple, go out Harold Road, sorry, that way, all the way to the end, Springvale Road, great big massive temple there. Their God is a puny of dirt compared to the living God that we come to worship. There is no God like our God. 
Brothers and sisters in Christ, if you forget everything else I say from this point forward, take all those verses, go back home, sit down with your pen and your Bible, look through and just savor and enjoy those statements about God. Lift up your hearts in worship for God. He is a great God. He is an awesome God. But you know what? There's more to the text than just who God is. It's what God has done. I could say more, but we'll keep going. Paul's prayer is for us to receive things from God. Paul even goes on to tell us about our character. Somehow that's in the wrong place. There we go. As much as I want to spend all my time unpacking and saving those great simple truths of God, let's go back to our text. Let's look at what the text says in verse 4. He says, but God... That's a comparison. It's a comparative statement to all that he has said about us from the preceding section. Listen to the comparison. In 2 and verse 1, he says, We were spiritually dead in sins and trespasses, but God is spirit, and in him is life. We were dead, he is life. In 2 and verse 1, we were living and walking and working in conscious, willful sin, rebelling and disobedient to God, but... All of God's works are righteous and holy and true. Everything we did had a sinful character, but God's works are righteous, holy, and true. In 2 verse 2, we were walking around according to the counsel of this world and the devil. But the Bible tells us in Ephesians 1 that God speaks and acts solely according to the counsel of His own perfect, holy, righteous will. Like we said before, nothing influences God from the outside to make him change his mind or deviate from his path. He acts according to the counsel of his own will. We were walking in disobedience, pride, and arrogance in every evil way. But God, in contrast, is the holy, holy, holy God. In 2 and verse 3, we were straining ourselves to fulfill the lust of the flesh, of our own flesh and mind. But God never ceases to love to work other, to make others righteous and holy as He is. We were destined for wrath and destruction and eternal suffering, but God exists and abides in eternal love, eternal joy, eternal harmony, and fellowship as the three persons of the Trinity. Look at the contrast. How bad off we were in two verses one to three. But God intervened. We were so lost and so bad off that no other created being had the power and the ability to save us. But God, who is God, had the power. He has the means, the method, and the opportunity, and He took it to save us. We were so sinful that none of us had the necessary righteousness to intercede and intervene on our own behalf. But God, but God interceded for us himself. We were unwilling and unable to turn ourselves toward God and seek for him. But God sought us and rescued us and made us alive for himself to be, as the book of 1 Peter tells us, a peculiar people, his chosen nation to be and sing the praises of him. It is God's nature, His character, His attribute of righteousness to make us righteous also. But listen, God was not motivated merely by pragmatic, practical desire to rescue and redeem us. He didn't look through the, the forward in history and say, Oh, great, I created them. I made them in my image. They've messed it up. i got to clean it up and fix them up. I suppose nobody else can do it, so i got to do it. That wasn't God's attitude at all. Like when you ask your kids to clean the house or vacuum the floor. Well, I guess if nobody else is going to do it, i got to do it. And they get all grumpy and go and do what they know they have to do. God didn't act that way. God didn't save us because somebody put a gun to his head and said, you got to save that worthless humanity. God didn't, wasn't influenced or forced by anything outside of his own desire to magnify the glory of his grace to us. And he saved us, motivated by his love. God was motivated by his great love to act, to intervene for us. 
Notice secondly, the second main point, that the love of God who loved us, the motive of God for all that God does in rich mercy and great grace is His love, His great love. So what is this love? What does love mean? I thought yesterday I'd go on the Google, type in what is love, just to see what the world would come back with an answer. This is what the world says love is. You want a good laugh? Here we go. Love is an involuntary madness. Okay, Love is a loss of control. Love is a craving for a specific person so that I must have more of her or him for myself. That's very, very selfish, by the way. Love is an evolved system of internal drives to prepare individuals for mating and reproduction. That's cold. No joke. Love is a force of nature. We cannot command, demand, or remove love any more than we can command the ebb and flow of the tide to stop. Love cannot be dictated. It comes and goes as it wills and as it pleases. Hey, praise God that He does not love us on that silly, foolish notion. God's love is so much better than that. Biblically, hagape, the word means defined, or is defined as esteem, affection, regard, concern. Hagape love is a strong affection and regard for other persons and for their good as God defines what good is. God did not love us by giving us everything we wanted. Think about the Jews in the time of Jesus. What was their biggest desire? Get rid of the Romans. They're over here. They're conquering us. They're, they're in our land. They're in our space. All the Old Testament prophets kept promising us that one day the king would, kingdom would be restored. So come in here. Boot the Romans out. You can be king and we'll all be happy. And Jesus did not give them the one thing they wanted. Think about us. If God decided, well, you know, I love these people, I will give them everything they want. They said, take a little baby. You take a baby and you expand it full size to full ground humanity without the emotional development. It will destroy everything in its path to get exactly what it wants. But God did not show us love by giving us what we wanted. God showed us His love by giving us the one person we cannot do without. He gave us the Lord Jesus Christ. He loved us in the person of His Son. God's love is an abiding, rejoicing love. The book of Zephaniah, chapter 3 and verse 17 says this, The Lord your God is in your midst, a victorious warrior. He will exalt or rejoice over you with joy. He will quiet you in His love. He will rejoice over you with shouts of joy. It's an abiding, rejoicing love that God has for His people. It's also an everlasting love. In Jeremiah 31, verse 3, the Bible says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Isn't that a joy to know, brothers and sisters in Christ, that the love of God that was displayed on the cross will never fade or dim. His love is an abiding, rejoicing, everlasting, ever-magnificent love. It's an inalienable love. In Romans 8, 38 to 39, the Bible says this, For I am convinced, as Paul writing, I'm convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. We cannot be pried loose from it. The same amazing force of God that pried us loose from His wrath, it also works to bind us absolutely tightly to the love of God. We can never be separated from it. Paul, even later in the book of Ephesians, he actually prays, Lord, strengthen them by Your Holy Spirit in the inner man so that they may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the height and the length and the depth and the width and the breadth of the love of Christ and to know, to know the love of Christ. Apparently, D.L. Moody, one day walking down the street, 
praying and thinking about this and the love of God, it struck him so hard, it literally knocked him off his feet. He got up, he went home into a room by himself. He spent hours in prayer before the living God, trying to comprehend this great love that he suddenly understood a little bit better. That's the love of God that was given to us. It began at the cross, but doesn't finish there. That's the love with which God has loved us. Now notice in the passage, you got mercy and grace and love. They're all connected to each other. Mercy is based on God's love. Notice what he says. But God, being rich in mercy, comma, because of his great love. So his love is the root, it's the foundation that drives that mercy that is extended toward uh, the undeserving, the miserable. Love is the most comprehensive of the three. It's the root attribute. Grace is motivated by God's love towards the undeserving. And mercy is motivated and driven by God's love toward the miserable. And we were, from Ephesians 2, 1 to 3, we were the most miserable of all people. Destined for the wrath of God, living our lives all for ourselves and nonstop heading straight for God's judgment and wrath. He loved us. Notice what Paul does. If you look at verse, verse five and verse one, they are almost identical phrases. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. And then in verse five, he says, even when we We're dead in our trespass and sin. He says, but God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. And Paul goes from talking about them as like a third party to saying, you know what? We're all included in this. He loved us. He loved all Ephesians, Australians, sinners in general, all of us are loved with the love of God. Notice verse 5, that God loved us even when... At the same time that we were dead in trespasses and sins, God did not wait until we had cleaned ourselves up a little bit. If we clean up our act, God did not wait until we had made some effort towards Him to worship Him and serve Him and love Him. God loved us at our most unlovable point. He loved us. God loved us when we were spiritually dead in trespasses and sins. He loved us, you and me, here in this room, not in the outside world, but not just them, all of us. God loved all of us who were living in conformity to the world. God loved us who were living in agreement with the devil. In John verse th- chapter 3, verse 16, what's the Bible say? Great verse, you all know it. For God loved the world in this way. He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. In Titus 3 verse 4, what's the Bible say? But when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. God's love was displayed to us. At our most unlovable point. How is God love displayed? The Bible says in John 3.16, it was displayed in giving of Christ. He gave His only Son. God's love is displayed in His sending Christ into the world. 1 John 4 verse 9 says this, By this the love of God was manifested or displayed to us that God sent His only begotten Son into the world that we might live through him. God's love is displayed in the death of Christ for sinners. Romans 5 8, y'all know it. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, same idea, even when we were dead in sins, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God's love is displayed by the redemption of his people. In Isaiah 63 and verse 9, in his love and in his mercy, he redeemed them. That includes us. God's love is displayed when he called us his sons and daughters. I was just marveling over this verse this morning. 1 John 3, 1 and 2 
See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us, that we would be called the children of God, and such we are. For this reason the world does not know us, because it did not know Him. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet appeared It's what we will be. We know that when He appears, we will be like Him, because we will see Him just as He is. What manner of love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called the sons and daughters of God. That's love. God could have snapped his fingers and given us everything we wanted, just like that. Would have been nothing. Grown old, fade away, rusted out and gone and blown away in the end. But he gave us the one thing that we could not do without, and he also gave us the one thing we could never lose. Because our relationship with Jesus Christ as His saved and He is Savior and God is our Father is an eternal relationship. I love the fact that I'm married. And my one struggle about marriage is when we die, it ends. Because I'd like my marriage to go right on into eternity and be married to Heather forever. But not even that relationship, that great relationship that's designed to display and portray God's love for His people lasts for eternity. But the fact that we are His sons and His daughters, that relationship lasts for all of eternity. We cannot be separated from God's love. And the question becomes up now is how do we respond to a love like that? How do we respond to such staggering love? From God. And before I answer that question, I want to, I need you to know something. And this is maybe a little bit of pastoral understanding or whatever you want to call it. I do not preach to fill a time slot. You know, I don't rock up, announce the announcements, pray the prayers, sing the songs, screech the sermon, and go home. Just tick, 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 done all the jobs, go home. That's not what I'm here to do. My goal in preaching comes from Galatians 1, verses 28 to 29. I preach to proclaim Christ, warning and admonishing everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone complete in Christ. In other words, I'm not here just to, just to do a nice performance of oration, in which case you'd be sadly disappointed anyway. That's not my role. I come here and I preach and I pastor to see the Lord change our hearts and transform us, and I mean that, us all from the inside out. I'm not here to preach, to coerce and beat you and bash you into doing the right thing and saying the right thing. That is not my role and is not my goal. My goal in preaching is to proclaim Christ so that all of us, would be changed from the inside out, made more into the image of Christ. That's a work of the Holy Spirit, but my role is to proclaim the Scriptures so God can do that. You say, why is he telling us that? I had four goals, five goals in preaching this message. Number one, to describe and portray the nature and character of the God who loved us with a great love. Number two, to emphasize the staggering love of God who loved us even when we were dead in trespasses. To emphasize God's love in action. He actually sent Christ to the cross. He worked his love. Did you notice what Paul says? In verse number four, he says, But God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. One's a noun, one's a verb. So he possesses great love, but he doesn't possess it just as a possession for himself. He actually works it out toward us. To emphasize that, the fourth goal is this, to call us all to love each other in the same manner as Christ loved us. And finally, to call the unconverted to love God too. You want to know what was the hardest of all those four goals? Number four. 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 Right? You know why? Because every time I open my Bible for the last two to three weeks and begin to meditate and think on this passage, the phrase, He loved us with His great love, it rang in my mind and almost immediately my mind shifted over to 1 Corinthians 13. Love is patient, love is kind, and so on. All those things there. 
And every time I opened my Bible and began to think about this, the Spirit of God provoked me and convicted me and said, you don't love the way that Christ loved you. And the message I needed to bring was more from my own heart than anybody else's heart. And I needed to be challenged. And God would not let me off the hook and get away from it. You need to challenge yourself and you need to challenge this church about how we love. Right? Every single time. I could not get away from it. Remember John 13 in, in communion? Jesus rose from a supper. He laid aside his outer robes. He girded himself with a towel. He took a bowl. He washed his disciples' feet. And he finished and resumed his place at a table. It begins with these words. He loved them to the end. And he got up and he served them as an expression of that love. Jesus said to them, I gave you an example that you should do as I have done to you. He also said in John 13, 34 and 35, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love one for another. How do we, as a church... Noble Park Evangelical Baptist Church, right here in 2017, how do we respond to the love of God that is described in Ephesians chapter 2? And the question I ask myself, and I'm going to ask it right in front of all of you, do I love you, my brothers and sisters in Christ, with the love that Christ has loved me with? He loved me with agape love. Love willing to sacrifice for the sake of my brothers and sisters in Christ for their ultimate good. Paul defined Christian love for us in 1 Corinthians 13, 1-7. Let's go over there. Take your Bibles and flip over there. Let's read 1 Corinthians 13, 1 to verse number 7. It's Paul writing, and the last line of chapter 12 says, And I show you a still more excellent way. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but do not have love, I'm nothing. If I give all my possessions to feed the poor, I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant does not act unbecomingly, it does not seek its own, it is not provoked, it does not take into account a wrong suffered, it does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, love believes all things, love hopes all things, love endures all things. We read that in wedding ceremonies, one after the other. It was never intended for a wedding ceremony. It was intended for the church of the living God. And the question I kept coming back to again and again is, do I love the people of God the way that Christ has loved me? And I know if you go back to Ephesians chapter 2, homiletically, it's not the way you're supposed to preach a sermon. I don't care, frankly. Because what God laid on my heart is that question. And I've got to share it with you and I've got to share it with myself and put myself in that position and say, do I love the church the way that Christ loved me? He gave himself for me. He was willing to become a servant that he might rescue a people. You say, well, it wasn't a cross enough. It was perfect. It was beautiful. He knew in that hour, sitting around the table with his, his disciples, he knew what was coming, and yet he got up 
and even put off his outer robe and wrapped himself in a towel and served in the most menial way that they knew. He washed their feet. He could have said, you know, Father, I'm going to go to the cross in a few hours. Surely that's enough. But no, even before he went to the cross, he saw a need. And he wrapped himself with a towel and he got down and he met that need. He says in verse 1 of 1 Corinthians 13, If I speak with tongue of men and angels, but do not have love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. I could preach doctrinally, theologically, homiletically, perfect messages, and without love, I would be better to stand here for 45 minutes with a drumstick and a cowbell and just beat on it. So it just banged away in your ears. That's how much profit it is. Do I love you? Is the question. Christ loved us even to the end. Spiritual gifts without love is nothing. He said, if I have faith, um, verse 2 there, the gift of prophecy, know all mysteries, all knowledge, have all faith. If I know every single doctrine ever put out, if I know every verse of Scripture like the Pharisees did, if I could expound them all perfectly, but if I don't have love, it's nothing. Jesus didn't say, hey, they'll know you're my disciples if you have a perfectly defined theology. No, he said, you'll know, they'll know you're my disciples if you have love one for the other. Does that mean we should not worry about theology? I did not say that, and I would never say that. We definitely should worry about theology. But theology without love doesn't work. He said, love is patient. A patient has God been with us, with me. But why am I, why are we, beloved, so impatient with each other? He said, love is kind. How kind has God been to us? You look long at the cross, look at the communion table and see the juice and the bread and all of it shouts the kindness and the grace and the love of God. How kind has God been with us and yet why am I so unkind? Why is it so easy for Christians to be so unkind to one another? Love is not jealous doesn't brag, it's not arrogance, all those things. Brothers and sisters in Christ, listen. God being rich in mercy because of His great love, He made us alive to be His children, to be God-glorifying representatives of Him to this world, to love each other as God loved us, to love our enemies as God loved us, to love our neighbors as God loved us. And I'm convinced that nearly every problem between two believers comes about largely as a result or a failure on one or both parties to love each other as they should. And I say every single word right now to my own conviction because I've failed in that. Listen. If we were loving each other with the love that God loved us, we couldn't shut that door for people pouring in here. I've heard stories of revivals back in the 70s and 80s in college campuses where they were doing no evangelism. They handed out no tracts. Nobody stood on a street corner and preached the gospel. There was Christian groups that got together and began to pray together and love each other, and they couldn't shut the doors. People kept flooding in one after the other, after the other, after the other, because they heard of the love of God that was being portrayed and lived out in those groups. Brothers and sisters in Christ, that world out there wants to see us loving each other. You can hear the taunts. How can you tell me about the love of Christ when you guys can't even get along? And I'm not saying that to point the finger at anybody in this room. I'm saying that to point the finger at me. Don't think for one second that it's my job to do this because I've got it all sorted out. I don't. God is still working on my life. 
He is using you guys to work on my life and me to work on your life and each of you to work on the other's lives that we would be built up in our faith. But it comes about as believers, brothers and sisters in Christ, loving each other with the love which Christ loved us with. So what is my call to us? My call to us, brothers and sisters in Christ, is to respond to God's love by loving Him with all of our heart, our soul, our mind, and our strength, and by loving each other, as Jesus said, as I have loved you. My call to you to hear this morning that don't know Christ, you're listening to all this thinking, this is great, what about me? I came here, I want to hear about this message of hope and, and the gospel you're talking about. Listen, the life that you're living, you're in living in conformity to this world. I have to tell you, on the basis of Scripture, that you carry on the way you're going. You are destined to face the full weight of the wrath of the living God because of your sin. But God! I can almost see Paul writing it and he just jumps to the next word. But God! He can't get it out fast enough. But God! He intervened. He loved you. You say, what has God done for me? God has loved you with an everlasting love. He has sent His only begotten Son to die on a cross to pay all the penalty for your sin that you might be washed clean and you might be gathered to Him that He can look at you and call you son or daughter. That's what God has done for you. My question to you this morning is, how will you respond you can get up and walk out that back door, walk away, and reject it. I can't stop you. If I could, I would. But day will come when you will stand face to face with the living God. And he will say, I put you in Noble Park Evangelical Baptist Church on August the 20th to hear a message. And I've put in front of you message after message after message after message, the whole length of your life, to tell you about my love, to tell you about what it means to be truly saved. And you have rejected it. And now I will reject you. And he will say, depart from me, I don't know you. But instead... If you feel in your heart that pull that you've got to know more of God, I can only say that because I remember the day I felt it in my own heart when God drew me and I felt that i got to have this. It was the Spirit of God and He was just pulling me closer and closer and closer to God. Then I cry out to you, turn around and lift up your eyes to see the Lord Jesus Christ. See love in action and love displayed, not in flowers and roses and all that stuff. See love displayed, the man with his hands nailed to a cross and blood running down. See love in action that way and respond. Plead with God for forgiveness of your sin. If He, he promises of you, He promises you, if you seek His forgiveness, you will have it. And he will call you son and daughter. And you will walk with him. And know what it is to really live. Would you stand with me? We're going um, to pray and then we're going to sing the benediction.